Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. While I'm interested in the frontiers defining the future of fashion, it's necessary to acknowledge a certain responsibility to and respect for the landscape of our past. Season 9 aims to understand the context our clothing has to our climate, our culture and our country. And in a world where fashion moves fast, examine how we can move forward and find a sense of self back in nature. This series will continue to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a grounded group of talented fashion professionals who share in their ability to work with nature as well as nurture and nourish it. Today, I'm chatting with Amy Lowe, Brand and Marketing Director at Piping Hot Australia. While fashion may have been a defining force for generations of her family, culture and community are at the heart of Amy's history. Whether she's supporting sustainable ocean research in line with Piping Hot and UNICEF, or working as a board member for a not-for-profit that provides fashion-focused employment and training to refugees, Amy carefully applies passion to purpose and does it with colour and charisma. Her affection for the quote, I'm trendy as fuck, but I don't want the world to blow up, gives us a window into Amy's style. And as we sit at Bondi Beach on a sunny afternoon and feel the inherent joy that comes with being by the ocean, Amy shares the joy and meaning that sits with her story. I hope you can sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Amy's story. today in the iconic Bondi Beach, as we were just saying. Um, a perfect backdrop to your story, I would say. Um, but I want to start off because uh, in getting ready for um, this interview, you put a post on Instagram, uh, I think a week or two ago. And with your permission, I'll just read the caption because I think it perfectly can start off our conversation. Okay. So, Gallimama, the tree of knowledge, went to Darwin with dad to explore some family history. Our family has had roots there since 1877. The ancient banyan tree is culturally significant to the Larakia people and was the meeting place, playground and notice board for the Chinese community in the early 1900s. It was directly across the road from my great-grandfather's shop on Kavanagh Street. Cool to understand it and know that generations of our family have been under its canopy. Um, I am a third generation Australian uh, whose family landed in Darwin many years ago and I love a really good migrant story. <laughs> so can we kick off by you sharing your migrant story with um, that Instagram post as the backdrop for it. Yeah, I mean, so it was actually quite a moving experience to be going with Dad to the Northern Territory. Uh, we've tracked our family history, or, you know, a family member has done that for a while, and just to be able to know that the family had, like, trodden and, like, been under the tree. Um, so my great-grandparents arrived in 1877, um, and then lived in Darwin, uh, had kids there, and then um, when Darwin was uh, had the air raids from the Japanese, um, my grandmother and my eldest uncle took a boat and then went to Queensland and then slowly migrated down into Sydney. Yep. Um, my dad's family, he's one of seven, they grew up all in Western Sydney and I really think there's not a lot of um, knowledge about the Chinese in that time of like the 50s and 60s. Yeah. So we've actually kind of created a bit of an oral history for our family as well. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what have you found? Like what are the things that have put tears in your eyes as you're kind of rediscovering that story? Oh, tears in my eyes. That's a, I just think it's it's so fascinating to kind of imagine what it was like for my grandmother to arrive from the south of China into like tropical Darwin, completely different environment. Um, the way of life was completely different. She had no expectations and had to find her way. She, I don't know how, but um, she lived her life without really being able to speak English. Um, <laughs> my father couldn't really speak to her because he only spoke English. So it was very much about resilience and trying to adapt into a new culture and 
my grandparents had a fish and chip shop in Parramatta. Like, they would not have grown up with that. And um, yeah, it's, it's just nice to know what the family experience has been and to try and learn how that may have shaped the way that we relate to our family and yeah. relate to ourselves. And I guess that's where the tears and the eyes kind of comment comes from because when I hear some stories, I think, oh my God, like now that, like just little things make so much sense because they have this reference point that I didn't even know about. And I think a lot of it is that sense of resilience and tenacity. Do you find that that stuff still comes through in the way your family identifies itself? Yeah, look, our family's really, Dad's family's super relaxed and has a really great sense of humour. I think, you know, um, that sense of family connection is really strong. Yeah, they're kind of unfazed by a lot of things. It's definitely um, open and and kind of a sense of, of confidence, I think, as well. Yeah, which, yeah, which is actually something that I think serves our family really well. And what do you mean by a sense of confidence? What does that look like? Well, one of the questions that we asked was like, in terms of identity, like how, how Chinese do you feel or how Australian do you feel? Because obviously, you know, by race I'm Chinese and, and it's been really challenging for me to be asked at regular intervals in my life, from strangers to friends to new acquaintances. Um, but where are you from? Yeah. Right. Uh, what, like, do you speak Chinese? Like, there's a lot of kind of um, expectation that comes with the way that I look. Yeah. And my dad and his siblings were, didn't, like had a very different perspective on, on that. They just kind of were happy to just be and hadn't really, I mean, I guess they wrestled with it to a certain extent. But they hadn't they, necessarily theorised around no, it? No, no. And yeah. they also felt like they hadn't really been asked the question as much either. Right. Right. So why do you think, because what, you're, are you fourth generation Australian? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. And so why do you think that you feel that more than they might have? So when we were in Darwin, we went to the Chinese Museum, and one of the things that was observable there is that, first of all, in the early part of the 1900s, the Chinese outnumbered Europeans six to one. Right. So in Darwin, the, chi the experience of kind of relating to Chinese and, and the presence of Chinese culture is very different. Um, and I think in the 50s and 60s, when my dad and his generation were in Parramatta, they were like one of two families. So it was just easy for them to adapt. It wasn't so much that uh, they were just who they were. They could just be themselves and be people, and you know they were all because the they were team. so much of the mon minority. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Like, I think yeah, so. that just like they just fit in. in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and I think as people have perhaps got a little bit threatened by the idea that there's more and more of a culture that's present. Yeah, um, and that it may not stop. That there may be, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure why, but. Um, my aunt was saying that the first time that she experienced racism was um, in the 80s. Right. So in terms of that then, like if, you, if, if your uh, family was kind of highly assimilated into their Western Sydney life, um, what parts of the Chinese heritage do you, did they hold on to, or, or if any? Or would, did, did you grow up feeling a very Australian lifestyle with no necessarily reckoning to your Chinese heritage? Uh, food is yeah. very strong. So there's always... The best yeah. part! <laughs> exactly. I just learned the term gastro diplomacy this week. Oh, and I'm going to have to ask yeah. you about that later. But yeah, so I mean, food, I think, uh, so celebrations... Even though, sorry, even though they had a fish and chip shop, the Chinese food and the cooking styles still continued on in the household. At home, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, it was all very kind of within the family there was a lot of traditions upheld yeah yeah and you're like it seems as though you're very close to your family mm. is that true yes what what do you think in terms of you know you growing up what's that identity point for you in terms of the role that you played in your family oh um i guess in my immediate family we're very close uh i have one sibling i I think we had like a felt a, I felt a responsibility to just 
be a good person. Yes. But aside from that, I don't think we had any formal kind of roles. So t tell me about that, being a good person, because that keeps coming up in my assessment of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so tell me what that, because it seems as if you have an incredibly strong value system. You've got a very generous understanding of your commitment to community. Mm -hmm. um, and for someone that maybe grew up, I, I mean, I don't know what your sense of larger community was like, mm -hmm. but tell me about that ethic that pulls through in mm -hmm. your, the choices that you make. Mm -hmm. um, so my mum uh, is from Malaysia. She came here to study and met my dad. And so that's kind of her background. Right. In her culture, there's a word called homia, which means lucky. And so there was a consistent message to, to me and my brother, you know, you guys are really lucky. You have this incredible life where you want for nothing. And so you have to do something with your life. Right. You. I guess it, there's an acknowledgement of privilege of, um, of all of the opportunities that we've been afforded. Mm. And so that is probably where I think that some of that value set comes from. Um, because you, you went to a private school, right? Yeah. Um, and were you in that scenario where you were that family, where your parents were working their asses off to, to keep you there or get you there? or? Or were, were your parents, your parents worked to a position where that was a comfortable choice, but a, a one that they acknowledged was a privilege? Yeah, I mean, I, education was highly, um, was highly valued. Oh, yeah. uh, it was kind of not an option yeah. to, to, for me to not have a good education. Um, to be honest, I think that my parents are, I mean, absolutely hardworking, but not to the point where they would say, um, it wasn't explicit mm. that there are sacrifices being made. Right. So it wasn't, um, it was more make the most of every opportunity. Uh, you have skills and talents. You have, there's nothing to stop you from doing what you can do and, and being, the, you know, chasing things. So go and do it. Yeah. Um, which is an incredible freedom, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And Going back to that sense of style and where it generates mm. from, where, where, like, what's your kind of first memory of fashion that you can associate with as a as a smaller child? Uh, well, my mum loves. I don't think she'd call it fashion, but I think she loves clothes and style. Yeah. Um, she sews, so there was always like elements of her making things. But equally, she loves shopping, mm -hmm. and so we would often accompany her as she was shopping, uh, we used to go to um, like outlet stores when I was a kid and we could pick one or two things for ourselves and there was lots of, yeah, it just, I remember she, we used to go to this place that sold a lot of like Jenny Key stuff. Oh yeah. And Jenny so Key would... keeps coming up in all my interviews. <laughs> <laughs> She's such a source of inspiration for Absolutely. people. Yeah. And so it was kind of, that's probably what I recall. Yeah. Um, and then also... And, and at, what was your mum like with if she... If, yeah. If style and fashion was like part of something that she enjoyed, what did that look like in her? I think she just took care with like what she was choosing. Yeah. It wasn't like... Um, it wasn't like Atlant, you know, like super fancy or anything like that. I think yeah. she just likes colour and shape and has a sense of um, appreciation for well-made clothes. And did that feed into any of her work or what she did? No. I mean, she did pattern making and things like that, but she was she had so many interests and yeah. was just pursuing lots of different things. So I guess through her there's always been um, a bit of a... Uh, like she likes making things. Yeah. So it's making food. She really takes care with it. She'll add the garnish on the top to make sure it looks beautiful. She'll pick a flower from the garden to put on top of something which just makes it look finished. Yeah. Um, and I would say the same thing about the way that she dresses and... Um, it's a pride. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she did flower arranging for a really long time and has done flowers for lots of family weddings. and. And it's that same thing, like she really just appreciates beauty and then tries to incorporate, to incorporate that. Incorporate that. Life, yeah. yeah. But it's in a fairly thrifty way as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it 
<laughs> Everyone loves a good outlet store, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so those skills, like, you know, the pattern making, she obviously knew how to, to sew. Like, did, is that something that she passed on to you? Like, is that an activity you ever did as a kid? No, I do know very, very basic sewing, yeah. but she's so good at doing things that... It uh, got done for you. It got, things got done for <laughs> us. Um, her family... Her, like her father's business was tailoring right. so she, and she was making clothes for her family from when she was a young girl. Yeah. So she kind of had such exceptional skill, it was really hard for her to kind of jump in on that. Yeah. <laughs> so did you imagine as a, as you know, as this well-educated young person that's been taught to kind of be considerate and grateful did you imagine you'd end up in the fashion industry? I know you did studied law, but did, was fashion working around fashion something that was in the backdrop for you, or like how did that? How did you get to that? Uh, it wasn't a plan that I had, <laughs> uh, and it makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. But I think at the time it was just about pursuing things that I felt like I could add value to, yeah. and also things Hence that the law degree. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. the law degree was, you know, when you're 17 and you have to make a choice and you have no idea. Yeah. And then you get told, well, you know, if you're smart enough to do this or you get that opportunity, you should just pursue it. Yeah. Um, and I never really excelled at art at school and like the, the kind of, it was unclear what kind of career I really wanted. Mm. So. Everyone had told me at the time, you know, do business and law, that's really general, you can then figure it out from there. So, um, and then when I was at uni, I had several jobs and many of them involved fashion. Yeah. And that allowed me to intersect with people who were working with, like, who were studying art and being much more creative. And that's probably where the seed was planted because I really enjoyed that experience of coming into a, a creative environment and, being able to actually grow and make things happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I left law to start a shoe company. I started a shoe company with a friend. Um, we had a great time, as you can imagine, you know, in our <laughs> 20s doing that. We made men's shoes um, right. because we... Why shoes? We met in a shoe store. Uh, we were working, um, selling shoes. And uh, so it was something that we, we knew yeah. really well. Um, and then we were kind of talking to a lot of our male friends and they just didn't have as much fun with shoes. Like there just weren't options available. Mm. And so we thought we could do something. Why not? Like let's make men's shoes. Yeah. Um, so we made these beautiful, incredible kangaroo leather shoes out of Italy. Um, went to artisans in Florence and had them made up. And yeah, it was, it was amazing. I know. <laughs> You've since worked for brands um, that we heavily associate with the Australian landscape, like uh, RM Williams, Mambo, and obviously now Piping Hot. The outdoors, was that always something that was part of your life? Because from afar, it looks like it's a big part of who you are now. Tell me about your relationship to the Aussie landscape. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's another thing that comes was a seed that was planted in my childhood. Mm. Uh, so I grew up on five acres um, in kind of around market gardeners with like horses around in kind of semi-rural environment. Um, at school, it was school was in the bush. Uh, Lunch time was spent in the creek and like in under rocks and under trees playing. So absolutely like the bush being out in nature has been part of the regular part of my life since I was a kid. Um, and then I guess how that translates is as well in terms of that, I mean, it's been that thread of working with Australian brands yeah. has been actually really wonderful because I think that there's some surprises that people have when they meet me yeah. and think, how can you be involved in this thing when it actually, like, the the picture that's being sold, you know, it's, looks so different? Well, actually, in fact, I, I, I'm so glad you said that because 
I was thinking when I when I'm like like for, again it's from afar hence the interview but I'm looking at you and I'm thinking oh I want to meet this girl because there's this one side that's obviously like conscientious you're obviously incredibly smart studious ethical you know doing these amazing uh, community um oriented assignments but when you start to dig a bit deeper, there's this kind of wild, very like adventurous, um, very earthy side. And it's a contrast that I love to see in women. And I'm like, oh, I like, obviously you've got a lot to add value to in the general theme of this podcast season. But just as an individual, I was like, I like this girl already. <laughs> um, I think you can have fun with Australian brands. And I think you can read like the unexpectedness like the and the sense of adventure because obviously that's really big to you mm. like if because is your instagram account private and we've just uh, oh, no, no, oh, no no okay yeah. so for the listeners <laughs> if you go to amy's instagram profile you'll see whitewater rafting you'll see like swimming with dolphins and swimming under waterfalls and the whole cachet of beautiful natural kind of adventures that you can engage in all over the world is pretty much your your instagram yeah. profile yeah so is it that sense of adventure and that connection to nature that's drawn you to those brands? No, I think it's a, so probably more just a curiosity about culture. Yeah. Um, and about celebrating culture, I think. Mm -hmm. So there's, I, I love getting to kind of understand what, what is the unique perspective that a brand can offer and how do you get other people to see that and how do you kind of turn it up a notch and almost reintroduce an element that of surprise because I mean essentially a lot of my work has been in ma in marketing and branding mm. and in that you have to really connect with a wide audience and you have to really find a bit of a like what are people talking about? Mm. What are people's perceptions of the brand and, and how do you actually give it some meaning? And usually there's um, elements of culture, like how does it intersect with culture? How does all those pieces that we're kind of starting to unpick um, thread together? Like the Chinese heritage, the um, you know fourth generation Australian, the migrant story, the sense of adventure, the sense of connection to nature, how do you feel like that all translates in the way you represent yourself, style-wise? Um, I think this is a tricky one because I think there's so many elements yes, <laughs> to where are. you, uh, in terms of what you choose in your wardrobe, when's the right time to wear a certain type of outfit yeah. or you know the pieces that make you feel really good. I think I need to feel like I am comfortable and confident and in terms of that sense of adventure, I need to feel like I can, I'm not restrained or constrained <laughs> by what I'm wearing. Yeah. So I can go and, and do things and feel kind of um, free and relaxed. Uh, I think clothing is a great way to connect with other people and style and the way you present yourself can impact people's mood as well. And so I often think about what my mood is or trying to to bring a sense of, of energy to yeah. that. And is that, because you, you do like colour, yes. you're not afraid of it, and you don't mind a, a, a good print, like a yep. good solid, bold print. Yep. Is that you trying to induce your happiness in others? Yeah. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I love black as well. Yeah. There's, there's moments where uh, you know, that's, it's, it's about the silhouette. There's a different, you want to play a different card yeah. in terms of your style. Um, but then there's also items that I love because of the stories, like where, where I bought it from. Um, and a lot of that is related to travel and... That cultural curiosity again, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or um, people that I think that have a really great design um, aesthetic or, or kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's like artwork. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and you can have fun with it. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, obviously we've talked about that sense of um, 
ethics that has been embedded in you through your family. Um, you uh, have been the board member of the social outfit for almost seven years now. Mm -hmm. um, can you share a bit more about what that role is and what the uh, organisation does? Yeah, absolutely. So the social outfit is a wonderful organisation, a social enterprise at heart. It's a not-for-profit, a charity um, that employs uh, refugee and new migrant women, um, employs and trains them to make fashion. Uh, and then retails it through a store in Newtown. So it's been a really kind of rewarding experience to be involved in the social outfit. I started um, by meeting the founder on the first day that she got the keys to a shop in Newtown. Um, and she had had no experience in retail and a friend of mine had said, you should probably go and see her and see if there's something that you can help with. Yeah. Um, so it started with providing a, a cash register, or at least a till, <laughs> uh, some hangers, and that was kind of what I thought was going to be the start. And then since then, it's really um, about being able to provide my knowledge and experience from the fashion industry to support that organisation to grow as a fashion label. Mm. Um, so we kind of call it the fashion label with a difference because it's all about impacting women um, and the women that, that are sewing for the social outfit, making the clothes that are um, contributing to the print designs who are now being trained in the you know retail store. Mm. So what drew you, I mean, obviously you've had that personal connection and mm. it probably just evolved, but what's drawn you to continue on in that role? Is it the sense of female empowerment? Is it the sense of cultural diversity that you're getting exposed to in that role? Is it, um, again, that sense of community? What, what's the... There are so... The, the social outfit's fascinating because there are so many different aspects um, and positive impacts that can be made. So there's an element of um, a model of sustainability because it repurposes um, you know, fabrics, dead stock fabrics that are donated from different fashion labels in Australia. Um, it provides jobs. Uh, it also, as a shop front, introduces people to a refugee experience um, and localises it mm. and provides um, a, a community for a really unique set that it's hard to replicate or to see in other parts of Sydney. Um, so I think that there are always different things that I get out of my experience in being involved. I think at the core, it's that there's something of value. There's a real heartbeat to the work that's being generated there. And it's something that I can contribute to in a really practical way. Yeah. Uh, and that's rewarding to, to be able to see how I can share my skills, my networks, knowledge to be able to help other people. Yes. So it, the tagline, if you like, is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, ethical fashion uh, that uh, like engenders a hopeful Australian yes. spirit. Yes. Um, what, what do you think, like how would you define that hopeful Australian spirit in that context? So there's some really, if you look at the social outfit, and you absolutely should, there's, there's just so much colour and vibrancy. It's a very different picture to, I think, what, if I was to say, it's about supporting refugees and, and migrants. It's done in a really bold, um, joyful way. Mm -hmm. And the hopeful and, uh, hopefulness is that we can have a diverse, inclusive Australia where we welcome cultures, celebrate cultures, where um, community is supportive and there's like a safe space. Yeah. And I think that that's what you experience when you, people interact with the social outfit. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like so many there are so many positive outcomes from the work that's done at The Social Outfit. Um, but it's, it's really hard work and it's hard to be able to be that model for effectively trying to integrate people who have experienced trauma yep. 
and to be able to work to strengths and, and to celebrate creativity in all its forms. Yeah. Um, why do you think fashion is a good vehicle to try and support that framework? Like, it's obviously it's a, it is a vehicle for connection um, and for labour, you yep. know, but what, why fashion in particular? So fashion is its own language and we all understand it and we can all see it. Um, the reason why sewing skills were identified in the early part of the organisation's kind of establishment was because for most refugees, um, or sorry, most countries where refugees were coming from to Australia, sewing skills were um, prominent. And so it was a, an existing skill set, um, and so therefore it was something that we could build on. Um, and there's a lot of research to say that adjusting to a new culture is helped when you can work from strengths so yeah. it's building on strengths and if you've already got that skill set then you can feel kind of at home already because you're working with your with something that you know yeah as opposed to every other experience which is new and different um, so when I had first started working with the social outfit one day we took the sewing um, the sewing technicians to the shops because they'd never actually been into the city. So we walked around the department stores and said, look, we're making clothes and this is what other customers, the customers that are coming into the store, these are the other stores that they're shopping at. Mm. And this is what fashion looks like here. And they all had such a different takeaway because the shopping experience is so different yeah. for them. Yeah. And in terms of the way um, the clothes look at the social outfit, do they reflect that bold and colourful spirit that comes through? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and one of the other projects I think that has been really successful is a program where uh, students from different high schools that are predominantly refugee and new migrant um, kids uh, participate in actually creating the, the print. And so a lot of the prints are that are kind of people's favourites are yeah. community prints. Yeah. And that idea that you can come to a country and part of what is your piece of artwork gets worn and looks amazing in these beautiful photographs on like gorgeous models and then you have strangers walking down the street wearing something that you've contributed to, like that's a really satisfying thing and profound right you know like because it, 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 it it's, it's profound acceptance. in that way that yeah it's acceptance and it's so tangible to see their impact straight away you know like it's yeah I mean I think it doesn't matter where you're from like it's cool when yeah. you see yeah, that exactly. like, I remember it's when people part of the creative process <laughs> right absolutely when, when someone buys into something like literally buys something that comes from your hand like it is such huge affirmation yeah of what you've been able to achieve one of the things that keeps coming up in the course of uh, teasing through conversations around sustainable practices in the fashion industry is the importance of a sense of community related to how our products are made. Mm -hmm. um, I, what's your take on that? For a lot of people there's a real disconnect or around where do their clothes come from, mm. like how many people or places are involved in the production of clothing um, because you'll see a, a beautiful image of someone wearing an item or you'll see it hanging on a, um, a rack and then you'll just buy it and that's then you make it your own that's it yeah um, certainly with the social outfit people are very interested in seeing the workroom in mm. seeing the women who are making the clothes and uh, I think that a lot of customers of the social outfit really understand the making part uh, as we dig deeper into sustainability and in my other kind of work, we're also really thinking deeply and, and working on expanding that knowledge down the line, which I think is maybe what you're talking about. So beyond the garment makers, what are the steps and what's involved yeah. in getting it to a, from a, um, a raw material into a mill and then a fabric. So the fibre part, and what's the impact of that mm. from an environmental perspective? Um, what are the conditions in which people are working from an ethical perspective? Um, and that's far more complex. Mm. And I, the best way that I can relate it is 
if we think about food and the way that it can be easy to just buy, you know, the burger or whatever it is and just not really think about what it is. You don't even want to know sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then there are other experiences where you have a really incredible chef who will tell you about this comes from this particular mm. farm and it was picked at this time and it's and only so available. About it. You know, they care so much about where that oyster or strawberry or whatever it is came from. Yeah, and it can go down to like a very particular variety that's, you know, and that's the spectrum in terms of sustainable fashion because we're there's as many stories to tell as there are around food. Yes. So it's either convenience, you know, and price at one end versus you can go very, very deep into the origin of a fibre, um, the design of the product, like all the different people. Yeah. And you have to be able to determine which part is most meaningful to you or which part... Um, I guess, yeah, are you most connected to? Yeah, and I'll get back to that because I feel like <laughs> that crosses over into the work you're doing now um, at Piping Hot. But one of the things I also found you, was, you had cited on social media at some point was um, a quote that said, I'm trendy as fuck, uh, but I don't want the world to blow up. <laughs> Tell me what that means in terms of your personal choices. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a t it feels like a fine line, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what I was thinking at the time <laughs> in terms of that part. There's a lot of there's a lot of inner conflict, I think, in yeah. terms of working to create things, to enjoy that aspect of design and and you know. Go so, through the creative process. Yeah. yeah, and then the cost, yeah. like the true cost when it comes down to the environmental impact, like the the labour that's involved, all of those different parts. Yeah. Uh, so, but you, you obviously do care very much about the environment and um, having an impact on climate change and changing the way that industries um, work. And so... That leads us into your role at Piping Hot. You're the brand and marketing director, but for me, it feels as if you're a lot more end-to-end -end than just marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so tell, tell me, well, tell us about your role and some of the, the cool innovations you're driving mm. through Piping Hot. So I suppose within, so yes, my, my title is brand and marketing director and, uh, I'm really kind of responsible for how does the brand purpose roll out and um, and that is very and that works across the entire business so the purpose is really to create global solutions for clean oceans um, which is big yeah just uh, a small <laughs> purpose the mission is really to help families save money and then to protect oceans um, and that can quit seem quite abstract mm. and it is it's kind of a response to as a surf brand understanding the threats to the ocean are urgent and there's a crisis how can we just share pretty pictures of the of beaches and and not acknowledge that there's there's work to be done there and that it can't this is not going to be the picture yeah for much longer if we continue when I say we, like if the human race continues in the current um, way that we are. So uh, the work that we've been able to do is kind of identify what areas of impact the fashion industry and specifically our business is making um, that is negatively impacting the environment, uh, particularly the ocean. And then how do we change that? What solutions are there that we can kind of transition out of virgin polyester as an example? Um, how do we advocate for, um, for ocean action? How do we speak to customers and particularly kids uh, and young parents who care about the ocean and who are making choices in their everyday um, and expect more from brands and from businesses? And how can we 
have a genuine conversation with them and not try and divert them from that. Like actually say, well, this is what we're doing. Um, you know, we're really addressing materials. We're really investing in innovation and be able to look them in the eye and actually say, yeah, we, we are having the same conversations. Yeah. Uh, we are wrestling with this. We are, it's not just a mission that we've got printed on the side of a wall and we kind of point at it every year and go, yeah, that's what we're doing. Mm. We actually can talk to you about what we've learnt, um, what we've put into practice, uh, what we're stopping, you know, what's, what the roadmap is, all of those different things because it has to have substance. Mm. Um, and so because purpose is so in, infused with the brand and my role in brand and marketing, and marketing now, I mean, even more so, like every week you read more and more about um, greenwashing and the threat to a, a brand's credibility mm. that greenwashing has. Um, I think that's how it integrates really strongly into my role. Yep. Um, but I think that having spoken to different people who work in marketing or work in brand, everyone approach has a very different agenda in their role and the way that they can carry out. So do you feel like you've driven that agenda because you love the ocean, you love the land? Yeah. Uh, no, I, it's, it's certainly across the whole business and it's absolutely kind of from our CEO kind of um, setting that yeah. out. So I'm, my role is, I, I think I get the fun stuff to be honest. <laughs> I get to really explore and expand it. Yeah. Um, to participate in the conversations with ocean experts and the ocean community to synthesize that information to then bring it back to the business and be able to say, okay, this is an opportunity, but that can come from anyone within our business. So we were all given that opportunity. Um, I so guess I'm the storyteller for that. Right. Tell us about some of the cool things that you guys have started to implement from a research and development perspective. The one thing that I'm kind of leading to is um, the textiles made from seaweed, but you tell, tell me what, yeah, yeah, yeah. what you're excited about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, materials are the substantive part of an environmental impact for our product, especially because at this point we have no real capacity to be able to manage like the end of life of a garment. So once it goes to a customer, a, a consumer, we have very little control over what happens with it. Mm. Um, and so for us, the biggest impact that we can make is determining one, the, the material choice, um, and then also implementing circular design principles to every product that we produce. Um, we have eliminated virgin polyester from our um, entire product offer, which is amazing, but then recycled polyester or synthetic materials, which we love to swim in, we love to um, go to the gym in, like, you know, all of those things. It, we know that it contributes to microplastic shedding. Even if there's very little that we know about how to stop it, there's very little that we know about um, even the true impact of what that microplastic shedding is. Um, where it's happening, all of these different things. There's a lot of scientific debate about the accuracy of some of the reports. Um, but we know we need to get away from it because uh, it's, you know, it still reflects our dependence on fossil fuels. So when we were looking for alternatives, we spoke to lots of different um, textile developers. We spoke to scientists in different universities around the globe and then we kind of discovered this option um, when we put our problem to some scientists at UTS and the, a group called C3, um, which is basically climate scientists at UTS who were trying to develop solutions like to solve um, climate issues. And they came up with a solution that was basically using seaweed to develop a new synthetic fibre to replace polyester. Um, and so we've started that prototype and it's incredibly exciting. It is a really steep learning curve because it's not an area that, you know, it's basically going back to a science lab and trying to understand the science of how you actually can redevelop a whole new type of fibre. Yeah. Um, but 
the brief is we want to remove synthetic fibres from our portfolio. We want to be able to have a solution that not just piping hot, but um, like the global demand for polyester at the moment is like 52% of every um, of the textile market is made of synthetic fibre. And so if we can move that into a bio-based fibre that uses seaweed, and part of the reason why it's seaweed is that you, it can be sustainably farmed um, and it's a huge carbon capture. Yeah, right. So, so there's an, an added, you're giving back to the health of the environment, not just trying to find a solution that um, yeah, that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. Yeah. yeah, so so it is a could have a positive impact in terms of climate change. Yeah, and so there's all of these um, incredible elements that kind of tie together. Yeah, and so we're waiting to see. <laughs> One of the things that is striking about piping hot is not only the sense of innovation um, and research that you guys are doing, but for me, it's the differentiation possibly against other bigger brands that are so um, associated with iconic Australia. Um, so, because obviously, piping hot's been around since the 70s. It's it's synonymous with the lifestyle that we're observing today. Um, but one of the things that you guys have done, which is the hard part when we talk about sustainability in the fashion industry, it's the roadblock I think I come against with other when in the conversation, and it's around accessibility and creating scale. So. From your perspective, how does a, a business need to change its framework or change its like um, way of thinking to be able to then get to a point where it can have a large distribution uh, and an affordable price point for people? Yeah, I guess it's definitely a challenge. I understand that we have been able to have the benefit of working with or having partnered with one of the major retailers in Australia, Target, for a really long time um, and understand what is, we had understood what was movable and what was immovable um, and when we set out to make this kind of transition, we understood that value was super important for the customers at Target and for us to retain that business, we, we could not increase our price points. Yeah. So I guess we were, at, but also we understood and saw the gap in that, particularly for families who were struggling with affordability, mm. that even if you do care about the planet. planet, what options do you have to make better choices? Um, and so we've done it progressively. We kind of started with one, um, We've, worked, we've also completely changed many, many things within our business to be able to protect price and focus on scale. Mm. So that means, you know, I mean, I guess affordability and then circularity kind of work hand in hand as well because it's about efficiencies. Yeah. Um, it's about making sure that what you have included in your product is what's essential. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say that we're removing the quality. It's just about rethinking the way that we do business and the way that we we work with our partners. Um, so if you were speaking to other fashion labels right yep. now, yep. And they would ask your advice. Is it to, that it takes time? Like, what what are the kind of big learning points that you could pass on for other businesses to think about in their consideration of these things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about setting progressive goals mm. and. So we started with recycled polyester. We figured out we were kind of very creative in terms of how we were able to introduce that into the business without a substantial increase in prices. And then it's just been, okay, well, we're not gonna do everything all at once. We're just gonna set some targets and then get there. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we've also been afforded the unusual authority to be able to walk away from products, which was something that our CEO has enabled us to do from like, if we know that we can't get there, then let's just stop making it. Right. Um, but it's been, everyone's had to be all in yeah. on that in terms of designers, uh, so our again, factories. again, of community coming yeah. back together to Yeah, and everyone's got to, has to identify like what, what part can I play in this? Yeah. Um, 
How does it feel to be such a nice person in the fashion industry? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that unique. Why? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I just mean you're obviously, you know, I, where I'm coming from is I'm picturing what that workplace looks like for you, mm. and I think it would be a really nice place. You know, mm. like a place of smart people with a common goal, and that that you don't get that in a lot of industries. So it must feel quite nice to be in that position, yeah? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think that since stepping more and more into the sustainability space, the sense of community there is like super, super um, supportive. And and the same thing that you just said, so within our business, but also other people who work for other businesses, um, that idea that we're trying to solve a big problem yeah. and we don't know the answer. So we should just trade notes. Yeah. This is what I'm thinking about. Has, have you tried this? Could this work? Um, and like, I think maybe to go back to, some, to something I think that you were suggesting earlier in this talk is like also like those left field ideas. Like you've got to have a bit of a wild card in there because maybe the wild card is the one that's going to like spark some other new way. Yeah. Are you the wild card? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, it could be. <laughs> I, I do like to think of novel ways. I do like to sit with something and then turn it on its head and then do the same thing. I think yeah. part of that was a practice that I had in law as well. If like someone would come in with what their challenge was, that, you know, whatever they needed to see the lawyer for, and you have to kind of just rework it, just like reshape the story a little and figure out where it fits and like how does it, um, how does it land? Yeah. Um, going back to the idea of sharing notes, you're part of Ocean Decades Australia, which, if I understand it correctly, is all about that. It's about working across different industries, across different platforms, to share information and innovation around uh, the ocean. Is that a good summation? Have I got yeah. that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so it's an initiative of the UN. So there's a 10-year decade committed to ocean science for sustainable development. Um, and it was identified that the ocean science community um, needed to be, I guess, more, needed to work more closely together to be able to really tackle these major issues relating to the ocean. Um, and yes, it's unusual for a fashion brand to be involved in ocean science, um, but it's a, it's, actually kind of the right space for us to be in because um, we want to be participating and we want to we can play this role where from a, a brand perspective we can introduce some of the science like we, people want to know real stuff they don't want yeah. a, our version of yeah. what is happening in the like what the major threats to the ocean are they want to hear it from scientists and scientists actually want more understanding in the wider community and so we can be that conduit yeah. we can kind of um, communicate some of the priorities that ocean scientists are like grappling with and invite curiosity from a wider community and so that's kind of our role but equally as a business and the way that government and politics works is that if you are representing a business that has, you know, some impact then, or and also is contributing to the economy, then you can sometimes get a seat at the table and you can advocate for things in a very different way yeah. than you can if you're an individual. So there are many facets where we can participate as an organisation. Um, and I mean, there's just incredibly smart people to be amongst, to learn from. Yeah. One of the quotes from Ocean Decades is the ocean holds um, the key to sustainable and equitable solutions to our planet. What does that mean? The ocean is this incredible asset, but I think one of the things that we've that I've learned in kind of talking to a lot of the people involved in that, like we call them ocean stakeholders or that ocean community, is that <laughs> humans are really connected to the idea of coastal areas, but I uh, don't have the same kind of connection or have the same affinity to the ocean, like this vast blue that you can actually see from space. 
you know, 70% of the earth is covered by the ocean. Um, in terms of its climate, um, like the, its role in climate and kind of protect, our, I guess, um, uh, what's the word for it? Basically, in terms of actually keeping our temperature um, moderate, like that's something that we don't really under understand. Like the ocean provides two out of every three breaths of oxygen. And we are also so connected to land. We think about territory, we think about... <laughs> so, so we don't necessarily, we, it's kind of an underutilised part, like resource. Of ours. Uh, and yet we've got like, you know, listening to our very noisy backdrop. It's a 26 degree day in Sydney. And the reason it's so noisy is because everybody's here for the joy of skirting on the edges of this ocean, right? We've got people surfing, yeah. people, you know, on the beach, swimming, what have you. Um, and yet, as I think in that video that you guys recently produced, you said that um, we know more about space than we do about yeah. We've the ocean. We've spent a hundred times more money on going to space than we have actually exploring the deep ocean. Yeah. Um, and we haven't actually mapped the ocean. The bottom of the ocean is still unmapped. We talk about new frontiers and we always think about space and looking up and out of, you know, where are we gonna go to when yeah. we've basically screwed up this planet yeah. and need to go somewhere else, we're gonna go to space. When we're trendy as fuck and yeah. it's all blown up. Exactly. <laughs> and instead, you know, um, there's, Scientists are kind of observing things that are in the bottom of the ocean. There's actually some similarities. So well, so there's some technology, well, there's kind of observations of marine life that have been able to survive in the deep ocean without, um, you know, oxygen, without uh, light, with all of these different things that have kind of influenced design for, or, and also um, science for vaccines, for food, like product, there's lots of different things that yeah. have, um, that are possible. Right. But it's really hard to actually get down there. Yeah. Because it's so different to what life on land is. And so it's gonna, it, it is a costly exercise. Yeah. Um, and at the same but time, so, it's so seems- a rocket ship, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it will actually, enable, I mean, astronauts go down into the deep ocean to prepare for going to space because some of the conditions are really similar. Yeah, right. Um, so there, there are some parallels and just this idea that it is a new frontier and that there is more to discover and that they're still discovering new marine creatures um, is kind of amazing. So all this knowledge and research, like it, it, it must be so um, enriching for you, right? And I wonder, with all of this kind of innovation that you're driving, this knowledge that you're gaining, um, how has that changed you? How has it changed me? Has it, well, has it changed you? Has it shifted your way of thinking about something? Yeah, well, about yourself? I mean, the way my... you think about yourself? I've, I find it extremely humbling to be welcomed into so many different communities and to be able to be invited in and, and to be able to ask questions and also participate in conversations where um, I can speak to experts and discover things. Uh, I feel a sense of responsibility to be able to share some of that with, with the kind of, uh, in my formal roles, but also outside of that. Um, I, I mean, it makes for great dinner table conversation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I definitely I, include you on my list. Uh, <laughs> but certainly, it also to go back to community. I think that it really identifies how much wealth of knowledge there is. But people are looking for that opportunity to be able to exchange information and to be really understood. Um, and more and more. I think the answers to the big problems, not that they're going to be 
what complete answers, but at least the beginnings of, of something that could resolve some of the issues that we're observing at the moment are going to come from interesting conversations with a diverse set of um, experts or stakeholders. Yeah. Um, and so speaking to marine scientists and speaking to um, textile developers and speaking to climate scientists and speaking to seaweed farmers and then speaking to um, you know clothing designers and and then speaking to parents who are asking who are answering questions that their kids have yep all of that it's kind of rolling around it's like okay so what's the most urgent thing that we need to deal with like or what is the thing that we can do now yeah that is going to have some positive impact and address some of some of that existential dread that you can feel when you are consistently getting information about the world ending and you know um, because I, I guess it's all about taking it's actually participating and you it's actually not as difficult as I think that some people believe it is to be welcomed into some of those communities yeah. to really immerse yourself in there and then go okay well I can maybe if that part relates to this other thing can we get in a room and then just not share that. notes yeah so not, not something that's necessarily changed in you though that seems to be why, no. like something that you have been doing throughout your career right that the yeah. bringing people together, the sharing yeah. of knowledge, the sharing of knowledge. I, th I mean, I suppose so, yeah. I, th I think um, in terms of changing in me, I'm always just ruminating over those things. Yeah. Um, and I guess I feel like there's more urgency. Right. More than anything else. And maybe I'm getting a sharper picture of how I can play a role in that. And in terms of your approach to your clothing as a result, what's happened or what have you shifted in the way that you choose your clothes, how you represent yourself as a result of all of this information? Um, I'm certainly more considered, although I think that I always was to a certain extent. Um, and. So when you say considered, does that mean you reflect on what you're going to buy before you buy it? Yeah. You understand, you do more research into the piece before you buy it? Generally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think about how it's going to fit into my wardrobe and what I might wear it with, other things that I will wear it with. Um, I consider, do I think that it's um, kind of ethically made or like where are the materials coming from? Do I, yeah, will I, how long will I wear it for? Is it something that I can imagine being in my wardrobe for a long time? So what, so let's say that ethics and kind of the sustainable practices that make the garment are covered. What's then the thing that it's like, yeah, I love something that. Something that's gonna make me feel good. Yeah. Just like something, something that fits well and something that just, there's some element that makes you feel like it's, that makes you feel something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then makes you feel good. Yeah. Yeah. So joyful, is that the main emotion that you're looking for? I mean, obviously you've got yeah. the comfort practical element, yeah. but but it's a sense of joy. Yeah. That. yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a joy and playfulness, I, I think I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you find, do, do you, obviously, again, the sustainable practices are inherent in, in your choices, but do you, in terms of the aesthetic of what you wear, do you think it has any relationship to uh, your love for nature, your sense of adventure? Haven't really thought about it. Um, <laughs> I guess probably in terms of colour, absolutely. Um, and by adventure, I'd probably connect that to travel as well, like yeah. that colour, like smell and all these things, those senses that really can transport you to another place. And so, um, yeah, yeah, and nature as well. Um, 
So we've discussed the new frontier of the ocean. <laughs> What's the new frontier or the next frontier? What do the next couple of decades or next decade hold for Amy? That is a very big question. I think that I'm going to go on as I have, <laughs> which is let's hope to keep <laughs> to keep looking for where I can um, contribute and kind of see where my curiosity takes me. Um, we're at a really fascinating inter like moment where sustainability is really taking shape and I think that there's it's also kind of opening up a bit more. I think that it's being taken seriously but at the same time we're a really long way from a true understanding of what it is uh, and what it will take to actually change an industry. So I don't know what that means in terms of the work side, yeah. but I'm really interested in being involved in some way. Yeah. And in when you're 70, 80, and you're potentially sitting under your own banyan tree <laughs> with your own community around you, what would you hope to be wearing? Ah, uh, clothes that I love, something that's fun and fabulous and I don't know, like just lots of colour, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today, Amy, and sharing your style story. Thank you for having me. <laughs> While Amy holds a reverence for her personal history and strong family values, she also surfs in a new wave of fashion where it's cool to be kind. This kindness and consideration of others permeates through all she does, including her style. Eclectic, playful and practical, Amy's fashion sense simply ripples joy. And just like her sense of adventure and love of nature demands a colourful combination of comfort and culture in her clothes, is also the thing that sets her apart as a wonderful wild card at work, always pushing boundaries on ideas and discovering new frontiers. Of course, sustainability, ethics and community are central to Amy's story, but it's simply her style to be a good person. And it's not just luck that got her there.